Continuing the series called Unclean. So we have a problem with God, and the, the problem is that we really can't approach Him. The reason we can't approach Him is because God is holy, and we are not holy. We are unclean. We have sinfulness in our lives. Uh, we don't do the things we're supposed to do. A lot of things we're not supposed to do, we do. And we're born with a sin nature. We sin. We're not sinful because we sin. We sin because we're sinful. We're born in our trespasses and sins. And because of that, for us to have a relationship with God, we need to be made holy for us to have a right relationship with Him. And so these offerings that seem crazy and ancient and, and, and so disconnected from the civilized world that we live in right now it are, are incredibly critical for us. And so we said, well, we're in the New Testament. We don't need that. God was mean and grumpy in the Old Testament. He's nice and kind in the New Testament. Satisfied all that stuff in Jesus. All we got to do is ask Jesus in our life and, 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 you know, and come to church occasionally. And then we're good, right? Is that, that's all we need? Well, yes and no. And now let and what stop. When you, when you hold up the work of Christ on the cross, it's like a giant gem, okay? That as you tilt it slightly, shift it in different directions and different you see reflections of his glory and his fame in ways that you maybe previously didn't see and so when we go into the old testament we see dimensions of the glory of christ or in the glory of god poured out through jesus that we would not see apart from the shadows of the old testament and so to neglect them to not look at them to say that they're irrelevant and unnecessary and unhelpful for us is to is to weight, reduce, and diminish the cross. We will read over so much stuff in the New Testament, it just won't make sense, or we will not even begin to be able to appreciate how incredible these verses are, uh, apart from understanding, having an accurate understanding of the Old Testament, and particularly the Levitical law. We tend to measure sin in degrees, and we assign punishments and consequences based upon the severity of, of the sin or the action just think of our laws i mean I, I don't know if you were guilty of the sin i was guilty of this week but if you ever in your life made a rolling stop kind of like jumbo shrimp it just doesn't really go together you know yeah. but a rolling stop really not a stop but but i mean you you pull up to the stop sign and you kind of slow down and you look to the right you look to the left everything's fine there is nobody out there you are completely free to go except you didn't officially stop at the stop sign, but you made a rolling stop. Relatively speaking, you stopped. Your momentum slowed down. You know, like you broke the law. And if a policeman sees you, he or she will pull you over and, and will likely give you a citation or ticket for that. And it might cost you a hundred bucks or a couple hundred bucks or whatever for your rolling stop. That's unfortunate and very frustrating. But we wouldn't punish somebody for rolling through a stop sign in the same way that we would punish somebody who murders another person. Now, if you murder somebody, you won't get a citation. You will not get a penalty. You're not going to have to pay a fine. You're, gonna, you're going to go to jail for a long, long time. Maybe, forever, maybe you will have your life taken from you because of that crime. And so we look at those two things and we say they're not the same thing. The severity of the crime deserves different consequences. And so we take that same mentality and we shift to God and we say, well, God, why would you send somebody to hell for exaggerating something, for a slight white lie? Well, the fish was, yeah, it was, it was a huge 
minnow. I mean, it was really, or the slight lie, or, or, or maybe just taking, I don't know, a couple box of paper clips from the office that, you know, you thought, well, they've got so many paper clips. They don't pay me enough anyways to buy my own paper clips, so I'm just going to take this box of paper clips. It'll be kind of like a bonus, and you take those paper clips, and you stole something. You have stolen something. Why would God condemn you to eternal hell for stealing a box of paper clips or not obeying the laws of the land and rolling through a stop sign? We don't understand that. See, Isaiah says it this way. Isaiah 59, 1 through 3, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot, that it cannot save, or his ears dull that he cannot hear when we cry out to him. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. For the hands are defiled with, your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. God sees through the superficial little things and he is measuring our disobedience and our sin, not based upon the thing that we did, but based upon the heart motives behind it. And those heart motives are cosmic rebellion against God and they deserve cosmic consequences for their sin against God. 1 John chapter 2, verses 50 through 16, kind of summarizes these. And this is interesting because this parallels beautifully Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and they saw the tree, look looked like it was really good and looked like it was going to taste. It looked good. They understood that if they eat of this, it's going to make them probably real smart and they're going to know some things God doesn't want them to know or hasn't allowed them to know. And so this is going to be awesome. And so 1 John gives us a summary of what happened there. And it says, do not love the world. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For you, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. I mean, I think it's going to taste really good and that that looks really good. And the pride of life. And if, if I eat of that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to know some things. That, I mean, I'm going to be on a level with God that he is not allowing me to be. And so I, I would like to know those things. It's the pride of life. These things are, are not from the Father, but it's from the world. It's, it's fallen. And that, that's the problem with us. Is when you sin, when we sin, when people sin, they are those three things really are the kind of the source of all Sin and it's pride and rebellion against God, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. All of those flow from a prideful heart that decides to do things apart from God, that thinks that that it knows better than God knows and chooses to do to 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 go its way apart from God. And our sins have made a separation between us and God that he can't hear us. And he. Has hidden his face from us. But it says the beginning, is God powerless that he cannot say, no, he can save. But our sins have condemned us. Here's the problem with sin. It is very deceitful. And and so God has provided an offering for his people. And this is going to be interesting because you're going to be shocked as we get into this offering because it's probably not what you thought it would be. But we've already talked about the burnt offering and it was brought into the brazen altar and they would lay the offering on there and and the burnt offering, the whole thing would be consumed by fire. And then there was the grain offering. So the burnt offering kind of opens up just ongoing fellowship with God. But the beginning of it, Every day, the end of every day, burnt offering. Second offering is the fellowship or grain offering. And the grain offering is you bring some of the, the first fruits or 
um, some offerings of your harvest and you, you bring it before God and you place it on there with a mixture of oil, picturing God's spirit and frankincense and, and that's, that scent as it's burnt lifts up to God and that was your offering to God and it was just something you did, thankful for how he's provided for you and giving back to him as he has blessed you, provided for you, you're giving back to God. Your works done, fueled by his blood. On top of the burnt offering, you place the grain offering and then we got into the peace offering last week. The peace offering is just the man, God's so awesome. I'm just thankful for God, and I just want to freely give an offering back to him, or he has provided for me in a unique way, or he has come through when, when I you know, trusted him in a situation and vowed that I would, I would wait for him, and he has come through. And because of that, I want to give a sacrifice of peace. And then they would take that, and they would go eat with their family or friends, and they would celebrate God's goodness. And we can do that whenever we eat a meal together as an opportunity to reflect upon the goodness of God in his provision of the food and the way that he is taking care of us. But then there's a fourth offering, and it's called the sin offering. And so chapter 4, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally, you might want to underline that. If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments, about things not to be done and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that has been committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord. It is a sin offering and he shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, lay his hands on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And then he goes on to some details we'll look at in just a second. Key word here is sins unintentionally. The sin offering was not for willful disobedience. It was for things that you did that you didn't realize that you did that were wrong. Now, I don't know if you've ever gotten busted for something that you did that you didn't know that you were doing that was wrong. About eight years ago, I was, um, in, I was a college pastor back then we were doing a retreat for college students at a place called Pinecrest, and it was um, east of Memphis. You kind of go up to the edge of Collierville outside of Memphis, and you drive um, east another, I don't know, 30 minutes through Moscow. And just down the other side of Moscow is this retreat, retreat center. <clears throat> so we did a retreat there, and a great weekend. It was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and then I was, I was driving the, the bus, and it was like a 35-passenger bus with a trailer behind it, a big old behemoth thing. So we're driving back through Moscow. And uh, Moscow has no stop signs, has one light, it blinks. And there's another retreat place there. I was, I was kind of looking for it because I'd heard good things about it, but I never knew where it was. So we're coming into Moscow, and I'm thinking, where's that retreat center? Next time, next year, I think we want to go to the little nicer place because this place was pretty rough. So I'm cruising along in the people mover. Big old thing, weighted down, tons of college students. The bus is packed, trailer's packed. What, I mean, it's packed. And we're cruising along, and I crossed the city limits. And at that point, I thought, you know what? I, it, surely this place is in here somewhere, the place I'm looking for, the retreat place. But um, I couldn't see it. And so then I, then I had this thought. You know, I'm in the city limits. I bet the speed limit is no longer 55 miles an hour, 50 miles or whatever it was. And so I thought, I better slow down. So I just simply did what was natural. There's no reason to spill everybody's coffee and knock them out of their chairs by locking on the brakes. I just took my foot off of the accelerator and knew that, uh, the gravitational weight of the bus and trailer and friction, all those, you know, whatever, physics stuff, it would slow down and then, you know, I, I would be fine. 
and there was a car in front of me, and I had plenty of space. So I thought, I don't have to put my brakes on, I'm not going to hit him. And so I just kept, you know, just coasting to slow down until I got to the appropriate speed limit, whatever it was, because I didn't know. And at that time, a gentleman by the name of Officer Jackson came over the hill in his unbelievably fancy Mustang police car and turns around, follows church bus, okay, um, with the trailer. I go into pull into another church parking lot, ironically, and Officer Jackson proceeds to write a citation for me, and he gives me a ticket driving a church bus full of college students who are Facebooking the moment right now, okay? So the reason I have pictures is because it's well-documented. And so they've got pictures of me standing next. In fact, I, the guy comes to the door, and you're not supposed to get out of the vehicle when the guy comes to the door. And so I'm there, but they're acting so crazy in the back of the bus. He's finally like, why don't you just get out of there and just come with me? And I was like, that'd be great. And I'm like, you guys are going to get me arrested. Would you stop? You know? And so anyways, I get out, and I'm talking to him, and they're taking pictures and whatever, and I got a ticket. And um, by God's grace, went back, talked to the judge a month later, and he let me off and was very gracious. And he told me where the retreat center was and said, if you would have just called me at a time, I would have told you where it was. You didn't have to get a ticket to find out where the retreat center was. And I said, at first I was thinking, I will never step foot or drive through Moscow, Tennessee again. And after that, I was like, well, Judge, I, I just want you to know that I, I am delighted at the thought of bringing a, a group of college students to come here and help your economy and invest in your retreat center because I just find this to be the loveliest little place. And I mean, uh, everybody's wonderful. And Officer Jackson's all right, but, um, but you're great and whatever. And I got busted uh, for a sin. I didn't even know that I was speed. I didn't know. I thought maybe I'm, a, I, but I didn't really know. It was an unintentional sin. But I think that happens in our lives all the time. There's often times where we do things we don't even realize or we think maybe this isn't right or maybe, but you, we just plow through life, breaking the laws of God left and right and never thinking about it. How many conversations have you had this week that if you really stopped to think about it, really were dishonoring to God? How many people have you slandered or misrepresented? How many ex- things have you exaggerated? How many times have you acted in pride? How many times have you held your tongue when you should have spoken up to protect somebody or to defend somebody? How many times, just with our mouths, have we sinned this week? How many times have we sinned with our minds and we've, we've thought thoughts that we really shouldn't have thought or looked at things that we should have, and, and we, we went right through it and we never even thought for a moment that maybe this is dishonoring for God. It wasn't even a choice of should I do this or should I not do this? Our hearts are so bent towards wickedness that we just unintentionally sin all the time. What do we do about that? God says, I've got a provision for you. First thing to think about. So sin is incredibly deceptive. Our hearts are deceptive, bent towards wickedness. We tend only to be concerned about the sins that we are aware of. In fact, in fact, think about this. Um, I've heard many people actually take comfort in the fact that they were unaware that their actions were sinful and as if they were kind of absolved from the guilt of those sins. Like We think that if I didn't know it was a sin and I sinned, then I'm really not guilty. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, God hasn't really convicted me of that yet? I mean, you, you, you share with them, well, God's word says we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do that. Well, God hasn't really convicted me of that yet. So there's like, there's God's rules and God's ways, but it, they don't really matter unless you're convicted of them. And if, if God moves upon your heart that you maybe should obey that law that's there, then, then you would be disobeying it if you didn't do it. But if he hasn't convicted you that you need to obey that law, then it really doesn't matter whether you do it or not, right? People actually say that we have so messed up our perspective and so tried to justify our wicked hearts, it is shockingly disgusting. 
And so, a couple things about sin. Sins of, first, there's the sins of omission. Maybe you've heard that before. The sins of omission. Omission. The things that we omit. The things we choose not to do or we don't do. That we should do. There's things that God has called us to do that we don't do. And those are called sins of omission. Sins of omission. Which we neglect to do. When we neglect to do the things that we ought to do. Secondly, there's sins of commission. And those are things that we commit. We do. We deliberately do things that we are that were wrong. Or even in this situation, <clears throat> we unintentionally sometimes sin, but we do something that's wrong, whether we're aware of it or not, that is a violation of God's ways. And so we violate God's ways and his holiness. And within the category of of committed sins, you can find two categories, one of which we it deals with the sin offering, and that's sins of ignorance, or some call them secret sins. Sins of ignorance, or secret sins. So through ignorance, you do these things. Unintentional sins. Means that, uh, not that the sinner was ignorant, um, not the sinner was ignorant of the law, but that they were ignorant of having violated the law. They had become defiled or disobedient and didn't realize it. However, Our ignorance does not cancel out the sin debt that we owe. I mean, Officer Jackson was not compelled to let me off the hook just because I did not see the speed limit. And I I knew that it probably, being in the city limit, needs I need to slow down. And so I did, on my own, without even being told to slow down, I slowed down. And he was not compelled to extend grace to me even though I had a very, what I thought was powerful argument. He didn't care because he has to pay for his Mustang, right? He didn't care what I say. And so he wrote me the ticket. And so sins of ignorance, secret sins. So there's, there's sins of ignorance. And the second group is deliberate sins. So sins of ignorance, second thing, subcategories would be deliberate sins. David actually prayed in Psalms nineteen twelve, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. That is, sins I don't know about in my own life. So he was praying that God would declare him innocent of sinful or hidden faults. In Numbers uh, chapter 15, verse 30 through 31, it actually is called um, high-handed sins. Or the opposite would be high-handed sins. Deliberate or willful disobedience. High-handed sin. Numbers 15, 30 through 31. It says, but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. The person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. Just like when David sinned with Bathsheba. Uh, Warren Wearsby puts it this way. When David sinned with, uh, took Bathsheba and then had her husband murdered, Second Samuel uh, 11 and 12, he sinned deliberately with his eyes wide open. He knew exactly what he was doing. Therefore, he knew that his only hope was the mercies of God. As we see him pouring out his heart in Psalms 51, which is his prayer of repentance to be restored to God once he was finally confronted with his sin and he knew that he could hide it no longer. Being king, he could have had a thousand sacrifices on his behalf. He could have had a thousand bulls sacrificed sacrificed and rams and, and, and lambs. But they would not have been sacrifices of righteousness because he had broken 
God's laws. And all he could do at that point was to beg for the mercy of God. And so, as we look at the laws for sin, the sin offering, let me just give you a couple traits of this, and we'll talk about how this applies to the New Testament. In verse 5, it says, The anointed priest, when he has sinned himself, is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And so, here is the tabernacle. The anointed priest who ministers in the uh, tabernacle area, so he's in the outer court. Uh, here you have the brazen altar, the court of, of the tabernacle. You have the brazen laver full of water for cleansing, um, purifying yourself, and washing during sacrifices. And then you have two sections in the tabernacle. One is the holy place, and the second one is called the holy of holies. And so on the front of the holy of holies was a veil that separated them from God. Let me see another image here. Well, this is a better one. So this separated them from the presence of God in the ark of the, uh, upon the Ark of the Covenant. That is where God rested his presence. And so there's a separation. And so he was to take the blood of the bull, bring it to the tent of meeting, and the priest was to go and dip his finger in the blood and then sprinkle part of the blood seven times. Picture of perfection. It says, uh, sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. Some say he would sprinkle it on the floor in front of the veil. Others say he would put it on the veil and he was sprinkling it on the veil. Imagine after his sin and the sin of the people and the sins of the nation and the sins of leaders as he's going to lay this out. Day after day having to bring sin offerings before the veil, coming to the veil and sprinkling, sprinkling blood upon the veil seven times for whatever the sin that was that the high priest was bringing before God. Imagine how that began to just build up. The picture of their iniquity, the picture of their need for cleansing just began to build up on the floor or on the veil. Year, day after day after day after day after day, reminding them of their guilt before God and that they're cut off from his presence by a veil and because of their sin. And only one time a year in the Day of Atonement was the priest to go past the veil, past the blood, into the holy place, and then that moment he would place blood on the Ark of the Covenant only once a year. But he was to place that on there, and the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense. That's inside the little tiny altar. And it also had four horns on it, just like this. And he would go and he would take the blood and he was to put the blood on the horns of the altar, purifying the altar so that the picture of the incense being burnt on the altar Picturing his, his prayers being lifted up to God. God would not, like Isaiah says, turn his face from him and not hear his prayers. But through the blood, his prayers would be lifted up to God. And he would have access to God restored because it had been broken because of his unintentional sins. They put part of it on the altar of incense. And before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting and all the rest of the blood of the bull, he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting on the outside, the big altar, like this. Verse 8, And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is in the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the, at the loins and the, the long lobe of the liver that he, may, he shall remove all with the kidneys, just as these are taken out from the ox 
of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. All the stuff he took out, he puts it on the altar. But then the rest of the body, the skin of the bull, and all of the flesh with its head and its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all of the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. What is going on there? Well, the remainder of the sacrifice will be taken outside the camp. is burned up on a fire outside the camp. And this is because of the, it's a picture of the destructive nature of sin. Uh, wherever God was and his presence was, that is where you wanted to be. And the further you were pushed away from his presence by way of a veil or by way of the tent or by way of the outer court, whenever you were pushed away, the further you had to go from God, the worse off you were. It was a picture of judgment and you wanted to be close to God. And so when you had to take your offering because of your sin and walk through the tents and the crowd and the rest of the people in the nation, knowing that you did something bad and that's why you're having to sacrifice this, humiliated and but openly humbled and, and repentant, you walk with your stuff and you place it in a specific place outside of the camp and you burn that sacrifice, picturing the destructive nature of sin and the wrath of God being consuming that sin. Sacrifice was burned upon the, the fire built outside of the camp. Revelations 14.10, it says this, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength, into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. And that is God's wrath burning towards and against sin, punishing sin as is justified because of its rebellion against God. But then in verse 13, it says, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, then they do any one of these things that by the Lord's commandments ought to be not, not to be done. They realize their guilt. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd of the sin offering and bring it to the front of the tent of meeting the elders of the congregation shall all lay their hands on the head of the bull before the lord the bull shall be killed before the lord then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting and again he's going to sprinkle that before the veil in the same way so evidently sins it's possible that a congregation of God's people, a congregation of people who profess to follow God, to believe in God, to live for God. It's possible, I know this is shocking, but it's possible that someone among us or we as a group could sin against God. Paul confronts the the Corinthian church because there was a guy in open immorality and they thought that they were really neat because they were loving and they loved this guy in the midst of his open immorality. 
And, God, and, and Paul said, you got to put this guy out for me. You are not helping him and you're not honoring me and you're not loving him by looking past the sin as if it's not a problem and a violation of my holiness. You as a people are not right before me because you're allowing one to remain who is with sin. This is why we need to covenant ourselves together in a kind of a membership situation where we say i i belong to you belong to me we belong to one another because your holiness and my holiness are intertwined okay our community us walking with god is is a together thing not a you have your individual thing and i have my individual thing we're separate i mean yes before the lord you need to repent and trust in christ for your own personal salvation but your growth and for that matter your salvation is not disconnected from the body of Christ. It's critically dependent upon the body of Christ. You cannot honor God and deny the fellowship of the body of Christ. But in the body of Christ, in the congregation, it is possible for us to sin against God and then there be consequences on consequences on all of us. You think of the sin of Achan after they destroy Jericho, this big fortified massive city. They go and attack this little dinky tiny city and they lose. Why? Because Achan had taken some treasures from Jericho that he wasn't supposed to take, hidden it in his camp, and they lose the battle. And God tells them, you lost the battle because somebody sinned in your camp. And so they start looking, who sinned in the camp? And eventually, long story short, Achan admits his sin, and he is and his family killed because of their sin, because of God's judgment upon them. And God relieves the nation of their guilt because the sin was dealt with. Then we find in Revelation chapter 1 through 3, there's a letter to several churches, seven churches. And, and of these letters, just some of the things that are said. So you say, well, that's the congregation, the nation of Israel. That's not the church. The church is different. No, the church sins too, because right here it says in uh, the Ephesian church. But I have this against you, Jesus says to the Ephesian church. You've abandoned the love you had at first, your first love. Remember, therefore, where have you fallen and repent. Do the works you first did. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I'm going to take my spirit out of your presence and you're going to be left to do church by yourself if you don't repent. I'm going to tell you our area is overchurched and under-gospeled and God has taken his lampstand from a whole bunch of churches and they're still doing church and yet God has left the building. The spirit's not there. Why is that? Well, a whole lot of reasons I don't have time to get into now, but that's what he's talking about in Ephesians or in uh, Revelation Pergamum. Some were teaching and leading others to eat food, sacrifice to idols and practice sexual immorality as if it wasn't a big deal. That was a problem. Sardis. I know your works. Jesus says you have the reputation of being alive. Everybody thinks you're great, man. You you have grown a mega church. You're an attractional, amazing mega church. And I am so wow. It's everybody's like, man, they've got an exciting. Thing. That church exciting reputation for being alive but you are dead wake up and strengthen what remains laodicea so because you are lukewarm i am neither hot nor cold i will spit you out of my mouth this is jesus words to congregations but then it goes on and he deals with leaders when a leader sins doing unintentionally any one of all these things that by the commands of the lord god has this is verse 22 ought not to do and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him and he shall bring his offering of goat male without blemish and shall lay on his uh, his hand his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they killed the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. So for leaders, Luke chapter 12, verse 48, it says, for to whom much is given, much is 
required. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, those who teach the word of God, those who want authority or have given authority or are in a position of authority teaching the word of God to other people will incur a stricter judgment. So God has an expectation on leadership within the body. God has an expectation on leadership over nations. I know you as me, are, we are shocked at what is happening in the whole political realm and whatever. And good night, what do people that really love Jesus supposed to do? And what shocks me is the condemnation that people dump on one politician saying, how could Christians justify voting for this immoral, disgusting person? And yet they have no problem voting for this other immoral, disgusting person. And yet this other group says, I don't care what this disgusting, immoral person does. I am voting for them just so I don't have to vote for that person because I don't want that. And so it's just like we have two enormously immoral people that quite frankly are a beautiful, perfect picture. I know we're shocked. I can't believe this is the only two people we can get to run for president. We have selected a reflection of who we are as a nation. They are a mere perfect picture of who we are as a nation. Why are we surprised? I'm not here to tell you who to vote for, who not to vote for. But I am here to tell you that um, we have a problem with leadership and the lack thereof of godly leadership in our nation. And there's a lot of supposed godly leaders in the past who have said a whole lot of inappropriate things and done a lot of immoral things and yet they publicly, politically profess to be a Christian or born again or whatever. And yet there's incredible immorality. There's a lot of skeletons in a lot of closets for a lot of people. And yet these are continued, things continue to get worse. Why? Because we are becoming more and more immoral as a nation. Here we are. We open access to bathrooms to anybody who wants to come based on their preference, preferred gender. You can do whatever you want. It really doesn't matter. And um, you can kill babies all the way till the very end. A girl's in trouble because she threw a baby out the window that was born premature. And yet you could, she could have had that baby terminated with partial birth abortion and not gotten in trouble at the same age. She got in trouble because she threw it out the window, but wouldn't have got in trouble if she would have gone to a doctor, a physician funded by our taxes indirectly and soon will be directly because of democrats that want to push and get rid of the Hyde amendment that says that our taxes shouldn't have to pay for things that we disagree with morally that we think are immoral and yet that's looked past and and then and then with disdain they're going to look on the blatant disgusting lewd immorality of another candidate as if that's bad when yet they have erase the definition of marriage to where anybody can marry anything anytime and it doesn't matter anybody can go in any bathroom based on their preference and it doesn't matter again when we erase and get rid of the 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 morality that we find in god's word god's ways it things just begin to unravel and that's what we have but but let's just turn our judgment into the body okay let's stop judging the outside and let's just look at us what have we done church to contribute to the problem what have we done? How are our leaders doing? How, how are we leading our homes and our families? How are we discipling our children? How are we, do, or, or are we part of the problem? Yeah, I think, I think we are. Sins of the leader. And then the last group is the sins of just the common people when they sin intentionally. Verse 27, 
I'm doing one of these things the Lord's command them not to do. Uh, then they realize their guilt or the sin has committed, made known to them. He shall bring his offering to God, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. It goes on, same pattern. And then verse 32. And if he brings a lamb on his offering for the sin, he shall bring a female without blemish. Then it goes on and he gives them the option to actually bring a lamb or even uh, in the next chapter will tell them they can bring even a dove for them if they're poor. But I want to turn back to Isaiah 59 verses 1 through 3. When God seems distant, when he seems that he's moved away from us, is God unable to save us, restore us? Hear our prayers. We said in Isaiah 59 one through three, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save or his ears dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with the blood of your fingers and iniquity and your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. Based upon that in the New Testament. Where do we find the sin offering? How do we deal with sin? Well, I'm going to go through a series of thoughts about the, how vital it was that Christ died for us and how incredible as we look at the gem and the beauty of God's wisdom poured out on the cross through Jesus to us. And we start looking at different aspects of it. Several things surface and just want to briefly go through these. And I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to give you a verse reference that will hopefully help you see this rooted in the New Testament. And so uh, write as fast as you can. Write the statement, the verse reference. The first reference is 1 Peter 3, 18. And it says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, for the righteous and for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So the first thing to note is that Jesus suffered for our sins to bring us to God. He has made a way that we could come back into fellowship with God. Okay, in other words, he has come to the altar of the wrath of God that consumes the fire of God that consumes sin and Jesus has come to it and has met us at the altar and he is there ready to receive us at the altar because he died once for the just and the unjust. For Christ has suffered once for sins, for the righteous, for the unrighteous. And I think in that, the righteous, the unrighteous are those who have sins that they don't even, they're not aware of. I mean, they're, they're unrighteous, but they're righteous in that they have obeyed what they know to obey or what they're aware of, but there's still stuff they're unaware of, and so they're ultimately unrighteous. So regardless of whether you think you're a really bad person or just a little bit bad, regardless, God, Jesus has died for everybody because all of us are cut off from God and need to be forgiven, not just of our sins of uh, willful sins, but also of our unintentional sins. And then that last part of that verse, it says that he might bring us to God. So Jesus suffered for our sins to bring us to God. Second, Jesus' sacrifice has made a way for us to come to God. A different way of looking at that same thought. He's made a way. He died so that we can come to God, but he's made a way to bring us to God, to come to God. Thirdly, Jesus has made us alive and is raising us up to live for him. If you look at 2 Corinthians 5.14, it says, for the love of Christ controls us, compels us, captures us, because we have concluded this, that One has died for all, and therefore all have died, and he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised. So he has made us alive and raised us up to live for him. We have been bought. Understand this. You have been bought, purchased with a price. You are no longer yours. You can't live for yourself anymore because the, the, what you lost when you surrendered yourself to Christ because you came to him with sin that needed to be dealt with in, in a way that you could never pay for a debt. You gave God all of your junk, everything you surrendered like the burnt offering. It was all on the altar. And God has said, now you've given me everything. Now you belong to me. I have taken your guilt upon me. I have given you my righteousness. You have been purchased and bought with a price. You're mine. You are mine. When you sin, you disobey God because you cease to live a life surrendered to him, given to him as an act of worship to him, as a living sacrifice to him, and you begin to do what you want to do again apart from him. And you are acting. When we sin, we are destroying that picture that we are now slaves of righteousness, not slaves to sin, not slaves to the flesh, not slaves to the world, but we have been saved from that. We are a slave to righteousness. And so next point in Jesus, we are becoming the righteousness of God. It's a process. We're becoming the righteousness of God. First Peter two twenty four says this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds we have been he- healed. So he, he died on the cross that, so that we would die to sin and we would live to righteousness. So we are to live um, dead to sin and alive. Sorry, I skipped the verse. So in, in, the, in Jesus, we have, are becoming the righteousness of God. So that's the verse I had previously read, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, a little further down. It says, for our sakes he made him who knew no sin so that he, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We will become the righteousness of God through Jesus dying on the cross, so that he's made us to make us alive to righteousness, and then that he's also, we are dead to sin and alive to righteousness. The last thought is Jesus went outside the camp, and this is a beautiful picture. So we could avoid being cast from the presence of God for. Uh, into the eternal fire. So we would not be cast from the presence of God, separated from where the presence of God resided. He is, he is, Jesus was willing to go out of the camp and die on Golgotha, on the hill outside. He was crucified outside of Jerusalem, outside of the camp in, as our sin offering. John chapter 19, verses 16 through 17, in the retelling of the crucifixion says, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his cross to the place they called the place of the skull, which is an Aramaic called Golgotha, and they crucified him. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 through 13 says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, those bodies as a sacrifice for sin, a sin offering. This is where you say, well, what does this have to do with the New Testament? He's saying in Hebrews chapter 11, those bodies that are brought, the animals' bodies that are brought as a sin offering... Hebrews 13, it says that they are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured publicly. The reproach he endured. Jesus didn't die 
at nighttime when nobody was looking. He publicly was humiliated, walked through the cities, spit upon, beaten, beard torn out from his face, beaten to the point where he couldn't even carry his own cross, but another person had to come and help him carry the cross, was crucified on the cross, publicly lifted up, humiliated in front of everybody between two sinners for our sins, and yet we're ashamed to publicly profess our faith in Christ and to share him with other people. And yet he was willing to go outside the camp for us. So how do we deal with sin? I, I, we, we have to cover this before we end. Because I hate to leave you with the knowledge of the sin offering, but not knowing how to do What do I do with it? So if you will just turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, the end of chapter 1. And I want to read these verses and then we're done. 1 John chapter 1. And we'll get into this more detail next Sunday morning as we look at the trespass offering. Chapter 1, verse, beginning with verse 7. But if you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we, so you're saying, well, that's great, but I don't always walk in the light. Okay, well, if we say we have no sin, and we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In other words, he's saying, yeah, you, you have unintentional sins and intentional sins. If you act like you don't have sin, you're wrong. You have sin. But, verse 9, if we confess, we admit our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So this tells us, how do we deal with sin? Well, we are cleansed by Jesus' blood first and foremost. We are cleansed by Jesus' blood. Secondly, we, it, when you confess your sin, when you admit to God what you have done in, in your sins, then he says he has provided a way of forgiveness for our intentional and unintentional sins. But then he goes on to say, trust in his forgiveness and he will provide for you as you're trusting his forgiveness. He's providing you cleanse, forgiveness, cleansing and payment for your sins. So he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. And then then the last thing you say, but I sin, I continue to sin. I try not, I don't want to, but I, but I, I do, man, I do. What is it? Well, verse one of chapter two, this is this is so good. And we're, we end with this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, I'm writing you these things so you be you be confronted with how horrible and gross and ugly and and, and dangerous and and wicked our sin is and the cost of our sin. And please don't sin. Don't sin. I've written these things. You don't sin. That you walk in the light. That you love one another as He is in the light. That you would not continue in sin. But if you do sin, know that you have an advocate before the Father. There is one who stands as a lawyer before the Father, and he is a righteous advocate. He is a righteous representative who stands before the Father and says, they are not guilty. You cannot punish their sin. Who in the world has the authority to tell God, Creator, God, Father, God, that he can't punish sin? Jesus, the righteous advocate. Why? Because God has already satisfied his wrath in Christ. The propitiation for our sins. That means that the wrath of God 
was was satisfied, poured out into Jesus, upon Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. God has satisfied his eternal wrath in Christ. It goes on to say, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, salvation is available for any who repent of their sin and turn to Christ. Salvation is available. So the last thing is watch your walk. He says, by this we know that we are, have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is being perfected. And by this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So for you, do you know Christ? You say, oh, yeah, I know Jesus. Okay, well, well have you confessed your sin? Have you put, repented and trusted in Christ? Is there, is there unconfessed secret sin in your life that you haven't brought before God that you maybe aren't even aware of? This is an opportunity for us to repent of the things we don't even know that we did, that we did, that have created separation, or the things that you weren't aware of, that you were going through life so rapidly you didn't pause to think, am I honoring God today? Am I walking in fellowship with him? Or have his, is his face hidden from me because of my ongoing sin and unrepentance? Repent and trust again in the finished work of Christ, your advocate who stands before the Father, having provided a satisfaction for God's wrath that you deserve. And if you've been forgiven of so much, he who is forgiven greatly loves greatly. And the love of God, as he says there, is being perfected in him. And so what does your life look like? Are you really convinced of how our little rebellions reflect a heart so bent towards sin? and wickedness that we are without hope apart from the cross of Christ. And there's people out there that need that hope, but first we have got to surrender ourselves and we have got to get it and surrender and walk in it. See the fruit of repentance in our lives as we trust in Jesus, knowing that we forever have an advocate before the throne who has secured our salvation forevermore.